Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. Open our mind and our heart that we might understand, so that we will turn to you and live. Amen. Well, we are picking up in John chapter 6 this morning, right where we left off last week. And so the first movement that I want to invite us to sit with in this short story is that Jesus withdrew to the mountain. Verse 15 tells us that when Jesus realized on the heels of feeding the crowd that they were ready to take him and make him king. And in some ways it's understandable that what does Jesus do? He retreats to the mountain. It says, when evening came, his disciples went down to the lake. They got into the boat, and they started across the lake to Capernaum, about a 12-mile journey. And so this is coming on the heels of the feeding of the 5,000. In fact, uh, this story comes on the heels of, of the feeding of the multitudes in every single gospel where it's present. In fact, one of the gospels tells us that, uh, that Jesus actually instructs his disciples to head toward the boat to begin to row across. But Jesus withdraws to the mountain. And I think there's something here that the Spirit is inviting us to sit with this morning. And it's that Jesus often withdraws to lonely places. Uh, Luke tells us almost in that exact language in Luke chapter 5. But it's something that shows up time and time again in the gospel stories. It's something that Jesus does a lot. Maybe another way of putting this is this is a regular rhythm in the life of Jesus. In fact, I would even argue that it's one of the rhythms you see in the life of Jesus' mom. She hears the news of becoming pregnant with the Messiah, and what does she instantly do? She doesn't go, okay, well, I need to set up a registry and throw a couple baby showers. No, what she does is she retreats to the hills. She goes to be with her cousin Elizabeth. It's a rhythm. And almost every single time that he does this, Jesus does this to be alone with God. Jesus, Jesus isn't just an introvert. Isn't just, like, I need a little bit of space. I need to care for myself. There's, there's elements of that, but certainly he gets away in order to be with God. And so I think one of the questions you and I are invited to sit with is, why does Jesus do this? Why does he withdraw often to lonely places to be with God? And I think there's really two reasons I want to put before you that the, for the reason why Jesus in, in throughout the Gospels is continually in this rhythm. And the first one is because the world is a difficult and troubling place. Because the world is a difficult and troubling and really hard place. In Matthew 24, which I mentioned briefly last week, uh, Jesus speaks to the difficulties of life. He says this world causes us to have a heaviness of heart. There are reasons and causes for things like fear and anxiety. There are wars and rumors of war. And it was as true for the people of God then, for the people Jesus is speaking to then, as it is now. A couple weeks ago at a conference I was attending, I heard Rich Viotis, who's a, a Puerto Rican pastor from Queens, describe the current moment with an acronym, CPR. He says, think about everything we're facing. We're facing the convergence of covid of political upheaval, and of ongoing racial hostility. Even this morning, right, I go to turn on NPR just to catch the news before getting ready to hear of another shooting in Minneapolis. Not three days even into Black History Month. And we're faced with more questions and more protest, more resistance to actually name the reality and the truth of our history. But we're facing the convergence of these things. Jesus knew what it was like in that moment. 
and he knows what it is to face the current moment as well. And so one of the reasons why Jesus retreats is because the world is hard. He's been faced with great need and even meeting it, he's drained. As we'll see Jesus later on, he actually laments and mourns the brokenness of this world. He cries, sheds tears over the state of his homeland, over the state of his place, its brokenness, the way in which it has fallen out of step with God's kingdom. But the second reason why Jesus retreats often is because Jesus knew in the midst of a troubling and difficult world, he needed to have spaces for more of God. At the end of Matthew 24, Jesus says this. He says, do not let your hearts be weighed down. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And to our detriment, we've put that on way too many bumper stickers and way too many coffee mugs. We've heard it way too often in the midst of our distress where someone's like, that sounds really hard. Don't let your heart be troubled. Don't let your heart be distressed. And maybe I'm the only one who's just heard it too much. For when I hear this with Jesus, it's hard for me not to go, are you dismissing the difficulty and the trouble? Is that what you're doing? Are you sort of just kind of pushing through and saying, it's, it's sort of Jesus's version of like, hey, I'm in control, let's get over it. It's easy to pass it off as that. But I, what I would argue that he really means is this. What Jesus is trying to invite us into is to understand that a life where our hearts are not weighed down is actually possible. That a life where with the psalmist, we say, the Lord is my shepherd. I have no lack is a life that is actually in Jesus possible. So the question is, well, then how? If the difficulties and troubles of this world, life between, you know, Eden and new creation is what it is. It's not going anywhere and doesn't feel like it's getting better. Then why would Jesus say in the midst of this, let not your hearts be troubled? Well, I think the parable that he will go on to tell in Matthew 25, remember back in the day that there were no actual chapter and verse divisions. And so Jesus immediately goes into a story. And out of, in Matthew's gospel, out of all of the, out of all of the kingdom parables that he tells, sort of stories he's using to not only capture, but to form our imagination about the reality of life with God and life in God's kingdom. This is one of the few that he doesn't offer an explanation for. I think he intends for us to sit with its meaning and where it sort of leaves us hanging. In Matthew 25, he tells the parable of what's called the 10 bridesmaids. There's a wedding and the bridegroom is delayed. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. The bridegroom is delayed. In fact, he's delayed so long that people begin to fall asleep. It becomes night. Back in the day, there wasn't just a light switch that they could flip to turn on the lights. You know, there's no light that they're leaving on for the bridegroom. And so they have oil lamps. And Jesus goes on to explain that there are five bridesmaids who have brought enough oil. And there are five bridesmaids that have not. In fact, he'll even go on to describe that the ones who have brought oil actually have a surplus of oil. And like so much Jewish wisdom literature, the story that Jesus is telling is intended to give to the people listening, both then and now, a wise way of navigating a broken and troubled world. In fact, he'll even call the bridesmaids who bring oil, he will refer to them as wise. We're intended to see them as uh, a sort of wisdom embodied for how to navigate a troubled world. But then the five who he describes as foolish are those who have a foolish way of navigating the world. 
Now, I'm not saying we all rush out and buy oil lamps. That's how we're going to make it through. Let's do preppers. I know where we can get big buckets of food that you just add hot water, stir it, and supposedly it'll feed us for a year. That isn't, that isn't where we're headed with this because in the Bible, in the Holy Scriptures, oil always carries a certain connotation. Oil almost always points to the manifest presence of God, the life of God in and with the people of God. In this presence, the deepening of God's life in our life is not something that you can fake. The five foolish bridesmaids can't go, oh, I, I, love, I love how lit yours is, so is mine. People be like, no, yours isn't lit. And it's also not something we can borrow, right? The, the, the bridesmaids who didn't bring any oil go, can we, can we have some? And they go, no. Jesus' story in light of Matthew 25 is intended in, in many ways to be a warning that, listen, the world is troubling, and so do not run out of God's life in your life. Do not run out of the manifest presence of God's life in your life. And so if that's the warning, then what is Jesus inviting us into? And again, Jesus withdrew often. Why does he withdraw often? Well, this is actually just one of many rhythm and practices in his life that he used to create space for God to do what only God could do, even with God, which is to deepen God's life by the Spirit in his own life. Jesus intentionally rearranged his life with effort to create space for God's life, to be deepened in his own life. Jesus created space for more oil. Space for God to provide with uh, what nourished his soul. And it's not just, I think it's so easy to sort of pivot to the monastic life when we think about this, some high level of spirituality. But this was all encompassing for Jesus' life. Jesus took naps, thank be to God. He ate, he slept, he spent time with friends. He worshiped in the synagogue regularly. He meditated on scripture. He sang the Psalms. He cared for people. He served the vulnerable. He spoke against injustice. He went into nature to be alone and pray. All of these are rhythms of life that kept Jesus going, that filled him with oil, which is what only God can do. And this isn't about manipulating God and convincing God. It's about creating space for God to do, which is with what, uh, what only God can do. And so I think one of the first questions we're meant to sit with is how will I rearrange my days to bring me more of God? Now, uh, as an example, I'll use myself as an example and not a great example. I I think there's a temptation to overcomplicate this. I think even on the back end of two years, I sort of returned to things that I did before. And the reality was that my life is just, we're all just so worn down and tired. That in many ways, uh, one of the things, one of the practices that Brendan and I have that we began this year is uh, sort of building off our community rule of life. We have a pastoral rule of life. And my first draft of this as I brought it, I was so excited about it and just it didn't even make it half a day, y'all. And I'm sitting there with Jesus and just going, I'm so sorry I let you down. And Jesus, just as only Jesus can do, was like, you never asked me about any of this. And as I sat there and and talked with him and and what I began to realize was he was inviting me into something that was very simple. That instead of sort of planning out, this is God, this is how I'm going to show up and this is the book of prayer I'm going to use and how Jesus was like, hey, just begin and end your day with me. And so I don't think, I, I say all that to go, I don't think this has to be complicated. In fact, in many ways, I don't think that it should. 
One of the things that my wife and I began to use recently, sort of stumbled into it, and then uh, it was awesome. Evan, uh, as we were all getting ready and setting up for worship, uh, came up to me. He's like, hey, have you heard of this app? And it's called Lectio 365. And I just want to commend it to all of you. And it was just one of those Holy Spirit things of, I had already had it. I showed him. I showed him and Missy, like, it's already in my sermon notes to bring this up. But just a very simple way to begin and end our day with God. It's like seven-minute meditations that they read scripture, they invite you to reflect, they have a whole entire app just for kids as a way to just simply begin and end our day with God. And listen, sometimes we make it all the way through and sometimes we don't. And I've learned not to feel shame and guilt over that. Thomas Merton has this line where he says, listen, one line of the Lord's prayer prayed by a single parent who's at the end of their rope surely carries more holiness and pleasure to God than a monk praying the hours in a monastery. Whatever it is, and wherever you find yourself, because it's different for every single one of us, whatever it is, I think the invitation for us is to arrange our days to bring us more of God. And I think we need to be asking this question frequently. And this is about more than just outer conformity because, friends, the troubles of the world aren't going anywhere. And I'm becoming more and more convinced that a deepening life with God is going to become more vital for me and for you in the days ahead. And not just a little bit, but like the wise bridesmaid, these women who knew the reality of life and the darkness they faced, these women came with a surplus of oil. And this brings us to the second movement this morning, stormy waters. John describes that it was now dark and Jesus had not come to them and the lake became rough because a strong wind was blowing, right? So you kind of have this juxtaposition of Jesus practicing contemplative prayer up on the mountain and his disciples are stuck in the middle of the lake. And if that doesn't paint the perfect picture of what life with God sometimes feels like, I don't know what is. Like, no wonder the psalmist goes, are you awake, God? Are you awake? Right? The God who just a few poems ago, you said you neither sleep nor slumber. But now I'm beginning to wonder, are, do you? So Jesus is on the mountain, contemplative prayer. His disciples are just hanging out in the middle of the lake. And the question that I want to invite you to ask is, how many of you have ever been in the middle space? Or it just feels like you're hanging in the middle. I, would, I was going to use the word liminal, but as a side note, I feel like I used that way too much early and in the middle of the pandemic. So just as a side note, that is what that means. I did just use it. So, all right. It's my one time for 2022, I promise. It's probably not. Evan knows. It's probably not. But how many of us feel like that right now? We're hung in the middle space. Right? Matthew 24 the space between, new create, between Eden and new creation. And what is true of the middle place is that oftentimes, nine times out of ten, is a, is a place that is isolating, where we feel like we are facing something on our own. And even as I begin to think about the, the men in that boat, there are some that have the skills to face what they're facing, and their skills are letting them down. They had rowed all night and making no, and some of these were weathered, sea, were weathered seamen. But then there were also some, I think about Matthew as a tax collector. He had no experience in the ocean or in, on, the, on the sea. And in Jewish culture, the, the sea was not a great place. 
storms and darkness and the Leviathan represented the chaos and the troubling of that life. There is a mixed experience in that boat. And one of the things that I think we're meant to sit with in this story is to be reminded that all of us are in our own boat. Every single one of us sits by the pool of our own tears. And that pain is real. The trauma is real. The suffering is real. And some of us face circumstances where our previous skills that would have helped us face it before have left us empty. Some have no idea how we're going to make it through what we currently face. So I think the reminder is that we are a collection of diverse, complicated, and beautiful stories. One person handles this moment in a way that is different than others. And I think, especially in this moment, as a community longing and seeking to practice and follow the way of Jesus, there is a call to make space for curiosity and grace and a whole lot of forgiveness. Y'all, we can barely tell our own stories well, let alone tell the story of someone else. This brings us to the third movement. Jesus walks on the water. It says when they had rowed about three or four miles, here comes Jesus walking on the lake, coming near the boat. And they were terrified. In this moment, Jesus is walking on top of the very thing that overwhelmed his friends. There's echoes of the Psalms that God sits above the raging waters. God is moving toward his friends. And in his movement, what God is saying is, I am able to overcome that which overcomes you. And what is their response? They go, oh, they put down the oars and go, why didn't you say so? No, that's not their response at all. They're terrified. In fact, this, is, this scene is going to play out a number of times with the disciples. At one point, they're going to think he's a ghost. The presence of God is not immediately consoling to his friends. Why? Because friends, and I think we all know this, that is exactly what suffering and fear and difficulty can do. Jesus's friends have tunnel vision. Their eyes, their viewpoint has become pinpointed on the problem. And this is what trouble and suffering and difficulty does to us all. It forms and cultivates tunnel vision. And friends, we have collectively been through this over two plus years being formed with tunnel vision. But I wonder, and I find myself wondering in these days, what would it mean to not just develop an eye for the problem and the difficulty? Because we need that, right? There are some pockets of the church, even for some of us, our stories, if your story is anything like mine, my family didn't talk about pain. We didn't talk about difficulty, even though the chaos and the, and the rub and the, the, uh, the remnants were all around us going an entire summer without food or power. We never talked about it. Like we're just pretending like life is normal. And so we need to cultivate an eye for difficulty and suffering of naming that. I think especially as a white church to our sisters and our brothers who live and, and exist in places on the margin to grow and being able to understand and listen to the stories and name. But there is also an invitation as people living in the kingdom of God, making a home in the kingdom of God, to also cultivate an eye for God. 
Friends, I am the first amongst us when it comes to missing the presence of God in difficult circumstances. But it is God's very nature for to say, here I am, welcome me into your spaces. What, are the, what did Jesus' friends do? They say, get in the boat, invite him. They invite him into their space, into their boat. God wants me and wants you to welcome him into our personal space, and so will we. Will we intentionally rearrange our lives with effort to create space for God's life to be deepened in our life for oil? God comes, gets in the boat, not to shame. He doesn't come and go, how dare you be afraid? How dare you be scared? As if he didn't bleed with anxiety in the garden. Instead, he comes as one to comfort, to heal, to restore our union with him. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.